Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I may have just mentioned, I'm Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you're listening to this. Me? Oh, I'm doing okay. The other night, Lisa and I ended up engaging in a bit of a game of Netflix chicken, I guess you could call it, where we couldn't really decide what to watch and somehow ended up being like, oh, you really don't care? No. Do you care? No. Fine. A Christmas Prince? Yeah, sure. I don't care. Okay, we're going to watch A Christmas Prince. And we ended up watching A Christmas Prince. It was very bad. I'm sure that probably won't be a huge surprise to anyone, but I find myself in a weird situation where I now kind of want other people to watch it just so that I can talk about it. It's kind of like I once ended up watching Repo, a genetic opera, when I thought I was going to be watching Repo Man, and I kind of needed other people to see that movie because I needed to make sure that it wasn't just a horrifying fever dream that I had. Yeah. So, here's the thing about A Christmas Prince. There are two main things. One, the main character, who is a plucky young reporter who just wants to find love, but doesn't realize it yet. Her dad has adopted a fairly standard Tony Danza-esque New York accent, which is fine. It's not good, but it's, it's fine. But his character is supposed to work in a diner, and it is very clearly a coffee shop. It, like, has the big chalkboard in the back. It's a coffee shop. It's amazing to me that they spent a lot of money on this movie on sets and things. They could not find a single diner that would allow them to shoot in. The other main thing that stuck out at me, and it's one of my favorite things that I've stumbled across in a while, is that the actress who plays the main character's boss made the decision that because her character is a New York newspaper lady, she's going to be a 1930s screwball comedy newspaper lady. And she talks like this all the time. And it's really weird. It's one of my new favorite voices to do. It's just such a specific choice to make and such an odd one, and I can't get it out of my head. So yeah, I guess what I'm saying is you should probably watch A Christmas Prince. With the caveat that it's not good and you can also probably turn it off after the first 10 minutes or so. Anyway, on the off chance that you didn't tune into this comic book podcast to hear my in-depth film criticism of A Christmas Prince, let's talk about a comic book. Without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Molly Hayes Hernandez. Thanks, Molly. Your plan for finding friendship was a bit of a waste, because the lady just screamed a bunch of capital A's, but you still got the body right someone over top this, just like Amora did in that one week synopsis. Thanks, Molly. That was fun. Defenders, number 22. April, 1975. Fangs of Fire and Blood. Written by Steve Gerber. Drotted by Sal Buscema. Inks by Mike Esposito. Lettered by C. Jetter, colored by Stan G., and edited by Len Wein. Defensive lineup. Valkyrie, the Hulk, Nighthawk, Doctor Strange. Previously in The Defenders, Valkyrie decided to take a little break from The Defenders to find out more about Barbara Norris, the woman whose body hosts Val's mystically created personality. While on her sabbatical slash sojourn, the sorcerously Scandinavian swordslinger got mixed up with a bunch of metaphysical nonsense involving the harmonica of destiny, which is just as stupid as it sounds. During this malarkey, Val learned that Barbara's mother was some kind of evil cryptkeeper looking occultist trying to steal her daughter's youth, and that Babs had an estranged husband living somewhere in Vermont named Jack. When Valkyrie's teammate billionaire duel bird enthusiast Kyle Richmond, a.k.a. Nighthawk, found out that Val's host body had been married, he freaked out and acted even more like an asshole than usual, which is saying something. The entitled avian enthusiast sought solace in the arms of his awesome ex-girlfriend Trish Starr, a polymath free spirit slash supermodel who was objectively way too good for an asshole like Kyle. Their relationship was going surprisingly well when Trish's down-on-his-luck supervillain uncle, an evil egghead named Egghead, blew up Kyle's limo. The young couple survived the explosion, but Trisha's arm had to be amputated. Bummer. 
Egghead was quickly found and apprehended, but Trisha's untimely farewell to arms sent her into an existential crisis, and she decided to leave New York and embark on a sojourn of her own. An emotional Nighthawk pleaded with her not to leave, but the young woman was resolute, and made the difficult choice to head out on the road to find herself, leaving 180 pounds of dead weight behind her. Well, I guess more like 186 pounds. You know, because of the arm. Gadzooks! How did I arrive at those specific numbers for that dumb joke? Will Trish's journey of self-discovery be as weird as Val's? And now that the harmonica of destiny is behind us, what crazy cosmic conundrum will our costumed crime fighters next combat? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so... According to the official handbook to the Marvel Universe, Kyle Richmond weighs approximately 180 pounds. Trish Starr weighs about 120 pounds. The human arm usually weighs an average of 5.3% of a person's total body weight. Therefore, Trish's arm weighed about 6 pounds, so combined with Kyle's weight, that makes 186. Well, she joins a desert cult of mystics called the Dune People, gets possessed by an evil sorceress, and acquires a fancy bionic arm that hypnotizes her. So, no, not even close. And racial intolerance and inner-city poverty. Wacky. Valkyrie is strolling through the streets of Lower Manhattan, contemplating the nature of her now-character-defining existential crisis, when she overhears two dudes having a knife fight. She tells them to knock it off, but they don't want to knock it off, so instead they yell at her and try to stab her. Bad move, guys. Valkyrie draws her magic sword, Dragonfang, and smacks the dudes around with it for a little bit, telling them that their little knives are pathetic. And since she's implying that they are using their knives to compensate for having little dicks, the fact that their knives are small too must mean that she thinks their dicks are seriously tiny. Harsh. But fair. Val sends the tiny-dicked knife fighters packing. But not packing too much, am I right? As the microphallic menaces flee, she gives them a little lecture about the importance of being brave and living a rich, full life. Um, okay? The Norse warrior's oddly-timed motivational speech is interrupted by a long string of capital E's emanating from a nearby tenement building. Capital E's? Is that the one that means that someone's been driven sorcerously mad? No, no, that's capital A's. Capital E's must mean that someone's in danger. Oh, no. Val leaps into action, hurtling up the flight of stairs into the unheated, crumbling apartment building, seeking the source of the alarming chain of vowels. The scene that greets our sword-wielding superheroine is legitimately horrifying. A nearly catatonic young mother begs Val to save her child. When she enters the nursery, Valkyrie finds that a two-foot-long, ten-pound, rabid rat has crawled into the baby's crib and is rearing up to attack the terrified infant. It's one of the most genuinely disturbing scenes I have ever seen in a comic book. And I've read a lot of Vertigo shit. Val acts quickly and decisively, grabbing the frothing rodent by the scruff of the neck and then flinging it against the wall. As the sobbing mother gathers her traumatized baby in her arms, Valkyrie uses her magic sword to stab the rat through the heart. Damn. The shell-shocked shield maiden turned exterminator asks how the mother and child can live in these conditions. That doesn't go over so well. The mother kind of snaps and asks what the fuck else she's supposed to do. She's a single mother who has just enough money to pay the rent on this shitty, rat-infested, unheated apartment. She has to eat dog food so that her daughter can have milk. Valkyrie is heartbroken and insists that the mother and child come and stay with her for the night. Which is nice and all, only... Val's been crashing at Steve's apartment for the past few months. So, while this gesture is the right thing to do, it's also a little bit awkward. I guess what I'm saying is that Valkyrie is a very good person and an awesome superhero but a terrible house guest. Meanwhile, on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, billionaire-do-well bird enthusiast Kyle Richmond is attending a fancy party and moping it up something fierce. Aw, poor fella. I get that his dope-ass girlfriend just left him and he is justifiably bummed out, but seeing as dude regularly eats human food and breadbox-sized sewer rats aren't trying to eat his babies, I'm having a little difficulty mustering much sympathy right now. A pretty lady named Ginny starts hitting on him, but Kyle ain't having any. Then a caricature of a bald, lumpy, cigar-chomping businessman, Harold Holloman, tries to propose a business deal to him. Seems that Harry owns some property on the Lower East Side that he wants to turn into a luxury high-rise. You know, there's something about this boorish, aggressive New York real estate tycoon 
that seems somehow untrustworthy to me. I'm sure glad someone like that isn't making important decisions that affect me. Kyle is also less than impressed with Mr. Holloman and tells the belligerent business mogul to fuck off. Sort of. He's actually more like, Yeah, whatever. Even though I own a huge business, I don't care about business and don't know anything about it. Why don't you talk to my business manager, Pennysworth, tomorrow, and he'll probably sign a huge contract with you. Now go away, I hate you. Wow. You sure told him, Kyle. That's how you stand up to an unethical plutocrat asshole. Give him exactly what he wants, but do it kind of sulkily. That'll teach him. After this exchange, Kyle has had his fill of talking to arrogant, entitled jerks, so he takes a cab over to Dr. Strange's place. Interesting choice. Back at the Sanctum Sanctimonious, Val's recently rodent-ravaged acquaintances are having a fine time. The mother, whose name is Elena, is being doted upon by Wong, while Clea and the Hulk are captivated by playing with the baby. Seriously, you guys, the Hulk playing with the baby is fucking adorable. Val is incredibly disturbed by the poverty she has just encountered. Steve naturally takes this as an opportunity to condescend to her. Oh, poor naive Valkyrie. I've known about poor people for three whole issues now. It turns out that poverty is a bad thing. We'll report Elena's landlord to the Board of Health tomorrow, and if that doesn't work, I will prepare a lecture for him about how disappointed in him I am. I'm sure that will do the trick. Just outside the sanctum, a shadowy figure lurks in the bushes, watching the heartwarming scene within through the window. When Kyle's cab pulls up, the melancholy multimillionaire spots the apparent peeping Tom and yells at him, asking what he thinks he's doing. A fair question. The lurking looky-loo is startled and runs off. Kyle considers chasing him down, but decides against it. After all, it's not like he's a superhero or anything. He heads into Steve's house, where he is shocked and dismayed to see a baby. It's kind of weird. I don't think it's what they were going for, but it makes it seem as if he knows the baby, and the two of them have some kind of a bitter rivalry. He seems as though he's on the verge of turning around and running, when Valkyrie entreats the entitled infantophobe to stay, and fills him in on the story so far. Meanwhile, back at Elena's crappy apartment building, a bunch of masked assholes in green jumpsuits and crappy snake masks say a bunch of shitty racist shit couched in Bible talk, and then use a high-tech bazooka-looking doodad to launch a fireball into the window of the tenement building. A fiery sphere lands in the room of an old blind man named Amos Ferret. Oh, shit. First and last name of a minor character. Fuck. Sure enough, Amos Ferret burns to death in his apartment in a truly horrifying manner. It's pretty gruesome. Back at Steve's place, Elena agrees to stay with the Defenders for a bit, but needs to stop back at her place to pick up some things for the baby. Picking up some diapers and pacifiers from a shitty apartment? Why, that seems like a job for the Defenders. The gang all changes into their superhero duds and flies off to join Elena on some errand running. Hooray! Or... Rather, not hooray. Not hooray at all. Because when the defenders arrive at their destination, they find only a burned-out husk of a building. The structure's former occupants, the ones that were lucky enough to make it out alive, are gathered outside and staring at the smoldering ashes that was once their home. The newly homeless onlookers are commiserating on their loss of property and mourning the death of their neighbor Amos, when a fancy town car pulls up, and who should jump out but Harold Holloman, that fuck-faced business asshole from Nighthawk's party. Turns out that Harold was the slumlord who owned the building that burned down. He immediately starts yelling racist shit at and berating his predominantly black and Latino former tenants, accusing them of burning down the building just to spite him. When one man points out how stupid that accusation is, Harry doubles down on the racist talk and emphasizes his point by spitting in the man's face. This proves a step too far and the provoked tenant starts punching the shit out of his landlord. Hooray! His neighbors start joining in on the pummel party. Hooray! The defenders reluctantly step in to prevent Holloman from being beaten to death, mostly because they don't want anyone to get in trouble for the crime. I don't know, guys. I'm pretty sure beating your landlord to death is a victimless crime. Things appear to be calming down a bit, when who should show back up but those mass racist snake assholes from before. Turns out they're from a white supremacist organization that call themselves the Sons of the Serpent. Oh, fuck those guys. 
They start talking a bunch of racist shit, which does not exactly endear them to the crowd that is gathered outside the burned-down apartment building. Nor does it endear them to the Hulk. The Green Goliath has heard enough of the snake-themed fuckwad's ethnocentric bullshit and starts smashing the fuck out of those neo-Nazi asswipes. Hooray! Then Val joins in and starts punching racists. Hooray! Then Kyle joins in and starts punching racists. Hooray! The level of violence seems to be escalating, and Steve is concerned that a full-scale race riot might break out, so he decides to intervene. Okay, so does he levitate all the evil snake fucks up so that the police can come arrest them? Or mystically hypnotize them into not being evil racists anymore and send them to their room? No. No, he doesn't do those things. He does something way more problematic. Steve figures that the only way to get both sides to stop fighting is if they all get knocked down at the same time. So he... Damn it, Steve. He uses his magic to animate some nearby fire hoses and have them whip around the scene indiscriminately, knocking down all the combatants. Yeah. Doctor Strange just decided to stop a race riot by using fire hoses. Yeah. The Sons of Serpent decide to retreat and regroup, and for some reason, Steve decides to let them leave peacefully. As they go, the leader says some more racist shit, and declares that the Defenders are now their sworn enemies. Why the fuck did they just let them wander off? Smash them! Smash them now! Damn it, Steve! I'm gonna have to try real hard to remember that this is also the issue where the Hulk got to play with a baby. As you nice. may remember, last week, Corey ran afoul of a space yeti who hosted a children's television program and was vaporized. His atoms spread to the far reaches of the universe. But this week he's back. Corey, how's it going? Oh, thank goodness for that. Yeah. Whew. What a tale you could tell of your adventures in the far-flung reaches of space. Yeah, the details are fuzzy, thank goodness. Ah, yes. Fuzzy, much like that Yeti you ran afoul of. Ho oh, oh. So, uh, what did you think of this issue? Fangs of Fire and Blood. It's a hell of a name. It's a fucking bummer, man. This whole thing is kind of a bummer. It It is a bummer. I There was a lot that I really enjoyed about it, and I thought that overall it was pretty well done. It was a well-executed bummer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I feel like we said that recently about... I think we said that about the Teen Titans, mm. the Runaways episode. Oh, yeah, that was a dark issue. Yeah. This is a different kind of thing. I don't know. There's a lot going on in this issue. I, I feel like Steve Gerber is really establishing his voice as a writer with some of this stuff. It also, for the very low bar of Bronze Age big publisher comic books that deal with issues of race and racial politics class and economy too and that's all. yeah this does a pretty good job it's not great as i said it's a very low bar but what i did appreciate about it is it stays out of one of the most common traps that those comic books fall into which is presenting a false equivalency between people who are upset about racism and racism like, a lot of times it will be presented, a, a staggering amount in, in Marvel comics, especially. Later on, I mean, DC just really didn't talk about race very much. Uh, but when when they did, it was along the, sim, the same lines of, well, sure, racism's bad, but you know what's at least as bad, possibly worse than racism? People who are angry or bitter that racism exists and that they are being prosecuted. And this doesn't actually do that, which there are still certainly there's a lot of like weird white man's burden stuff going on in this issue that that is is uncomfortable. But at least it didn't do that. And that I, I was happy with. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, I mean, maybe they're building up to it as part of the story arc. But yes, I agree with what you said. It also sort of reminds me of a bumper sticker I saw once that I thought was kind of funny that just said opinions with an exclamation point. Yeah. And so it says, okay, here's the stuff that we're going to talk about, probably topical for the, for the day, you know, 1975. Right. Ends with like a bunch of neo-Nazis doing terrible, th or, you know, racist yeah. bad guys doing terrible things. And then just ends. Like there's... Well, I mean, it's it's the setup to a, st like, 
I know. I'm waiting right. for the like the not the punchline, but like right. at least the oh by the way, kids, this is bad. Those are the bad guys. Like, right. We're right. Just, I know we're supposed to figure that out because well, it's bad. But par- part of it is also the sons of the serpent have existed in the Marvel universe before this point, and I do like that they are setting up that it's going to be basically the defenders fighting some snake fetishist versions of the clan because mm-hmm. they're they're very heavily coded as being the Ku Klux Klan. The Sons of the Serpent first showed up in, I think it was uh, the Avengers number 32, around then. So back in the day, like early 60s, hmm. or mid, mid-60s, mid I guess, uh, which also saw the first appearance of a character who ended up becoming uh, Black Goliath, who was a favorite of mine from the 70s. But as I said, they're kind of a stand-in for the clan. The twist on it was that they were this evil organization that was essentially, as I said, the, the clan but with snake shit thrown in. Mm-hmm. And they were spewing vicious rhetoric against minorities and foreigners. Mm-hmm. And their whole cause at that time was to stir up racial disharmony and so that both racists and people who were being racist against would get violent, which would make them the same. Mm. And... Then it turned out that uh, it was an evil plot by the Chinese. <laughs> what? Yeah. Yeah. It was the head of the Sons of the Serpent was, in fact, like a Chinese general or something who was trying to sow discord in the United States. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. Those evil racist Chinese. You know, I had this moment of, like, when, and we'll get into it probably when we talk about the, the fashion, but, like, their headgear the the holes for the eyes are cut in such a way that they look almost like they have a epicanthic fold like this like oh geez and i was like hmm that doesn't seem to jive with the whole white people are the best thing but i think maybe they're just trying to make them look snaky or maybe there's something you know just not good going on with these art choices yeah i i think that could be the case i i i would like to think that that's inadvertent but that may have been part of the initial character design of the sons of the serpent when they debuted Mm -hmm. i would have to take a look to see to what extent the art matches but yeah that could certainly be the case (sighs) here we go again we did also get some pretty cool shit in this issue like the hulk hanging out with a baby Oh man, Hulk is. I know we say this all the time, but the Hulk is great. I Hulk really is like him in this the best. issue. He's so good. He's so sweet. Loves babies. Loves hates, babies. Hates racism. Hates racism. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, his response to the Sons of the Serpent speech, which specifically <laughs> said, only white is beautiful. It's just like, Hulk is not white. And then was just <laughs> like, smashed just started the shit smashing. out of everything. I am beautiful as fuck, you sons of bitches. Yeah, so affirming. Oh. Yeah. Good for him, man. <laughs> but we talked about the fact that it, it did talk about class disparity, and it got into that in some real specifics and really horrifying shit, which I appreciated. I appreciated that they did it, but damn, that fucking rat freaked me the fuck out. Every time I leafed through the comic book, when I got to the, the page with the rat in the crib with the baby... Mm-hmm. The rat is the size of a cat and spewing white foam from its mouth. Gross. Terrifying. Yeah, my notes for this, the, the first notes were, Stressful! Exclamation point. Rapid rats! White supremacists! Yeah. That was Yeah, mine, not good. mine said, That rat, though! Ah! <laughs> Damn. Horrifying. I, I actually talked to one of my coworkers as I was reading this issue, and his dad worked was an architect who also worked for i think he worked for he did some volunteer work for hud in new york city in the 70s and he was talking about inspecting apartment units where they would have a it would be a very clean apartment but the baby's crib would have like and this totally doesn't actually make sense to me but that they would have breadcrumbs all around the baby's crib i think the idea being that there are rats here. There are going to be rats here. Let's give them something else to eat to distract them. Damn. Yeah. And, and just like he, he said that that was when his dad actually quit the architectural firm, firm and decided to work full time mm. in housing and urban development. But yeah, man, that's some nasty shit. And Elena talking about how she has to eat dog food so that her baby can have milk. Mm-hmm. And it's some dark shit. And 
you get the idea that this is based on specifics, which is nice. Yeah, and I think the other thing, too, that's good is it ties that class disparity to race, where that is the tenement that the Sons of the Serpent are attacking. Right. And so it is saying that, you know, these are linked. Yeah, although it does also have Valkyrie just wandering into the ghetto and doing kind of a white woman's burden and just being like, you two, stop fighting each other. Mm Mm-hmm. It makes character sense for her. She is new to the world. She sees people fighting. She wants them to stop fighting. It was a little bit racially uncomfortable that Mm -hmm. they were... I'm not sure if they were supposed to be black or Puerto Rican or both. Mm -hmm. And their dialogue was maybe not the most authentic. (laughs) Let's take a look at some of it, actually. What do they call her? Blondie? Blondo? Uh, They call her yellow-haired. Oh, that's right. But, like, without a noun at the end. Mm -hmm. Like, yellow-haired is the noun. A woman, a stinking yellow-haired, <laughs> who made this your business, sister? Beat it. Get out of here, or I'll cut you too. And then the other one calls her Blanca. This ain't Park Avenue, Blanca. A man is a man. El Macho here, see? I don't take orders from no woman. And then they attack her, and then she, uh, she tells them they got little dicks. Um, <laughs> furthermore, I am not impressed by these skinny little toys you call weapons nor with by the fatuous posturing with which you shore up your fragile egos. A man's strength and character is not measured by the length of his blade, but by the boldness of his heart. Bam, Valkyrie. Yeah, that was pretty fun. She is super badass in this issue. She, she is, and it's, it's nice to see that. The crib baby thing? Like, I like to think, like, if I was in that situation, I'd totally, like, do what she did and grab the rat and smash it, but I would probably be like... Sorry, kid. Yep. <laughs> that rat's fucking scary. Jump, jump out of that crib. Come here, kiddo. <laughs> I'm not going that, here. That rat'll probably get sleepy soon. Ugh. She just reaches in and grabs it. it just and... reaches it, grabs it, flings it against the wall, and then stabs it. Badass. And it's super effective. And just, yeah, like, honestly, we've seen her fight monsters. We've seen her cut a steamroller in half. That scene is maybe the most badass any character has looked in a Defenders comic to mm-hmm. me. Grabbing a rabid cat-sized rat by the scruff of the neck, flinging it against the wall, and then stabbing it. It's also one of the first instances in which we see a creature specifically killed. Mm. You know? and Specifically and intentionally stabbed. It's super badass, and yeah, it's a hell of a scene. I do want to get back real quickly to after Valkyrie gives her speech about the size of a man's blade not being important. Mm -hmm. I do like that immediately after that, her contempt for the two knife-wielding toughs rapidly dissipates. Was her lecture as inane as their bravado, she wonders? Yes, it was. So Mm. good self-awareness, Val. Uh, Yeah, time away from Steve Strange has been good for her. It really has. (laughs) So let's move away from a character who did a pretty good job in Valkyrie. Okay. She takes Elena and the baby after she skewers the rat Mm -hmm. back to Steve Strange's place. Mm -hmm. And Steve is like, oh, Val, this is the first time you've dealt with poverty, isn't it? Yeah, totally. He's old hat at it. Ever since issue 19, when he first learned that it existed and was horrified, he's like, oh, yes, I've been fighting poverty for quite a while. Do you remember that one time I gave a homeless man a feast of a banquet? Fit for a king. Yep. Done and done. Strange that there's still poverty. Yeah, weird. Thought I had that one nipped in the bud. Yep. Yeah, he totally mansplains the poverty thing. Yeah, he absolutely does. But I, even with that, though, his his explanation, I feel like he maybe just Googled, like, you know. With his, the eye of Agamotto? Yeah, I think he used his mystical Google to look up poverty because his 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 explanation is uh it is not even in our power to solve that problem val yet we may take certain steps in this particular instance the conditions in elena's buildings are intolerable and illegal i kind of like that i kind of like that like no that's actually a huge systemic problem that we can't immediately solve i feel like they could probably do more to work on it Mm -hmm. you know and by more i mean something Mm mm-hmm but I also do like that he recognizes that this specific instance, there are legal rather than supernatural means that they can use to combat the problem. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, good for him in that regard. 
It's still, yeah, super mansplaining. Oh, I know all about poverty. Mm -hmm. Banquet distribution. In addition to Steve perhaps being pretty mansplaining, Kyle does a pretty bad job on a couple of fronts here. Oh, Kyle. First of all, he reestablishes the fact that despite being a billionaire business owner, he has no knowledge of what is happening with his business and lets other people run it. And even kind of makes a bit of a nod to the fact that he's aware that some of it's pretty unethical. Like Holloman, who he's like, this guy's a real piece of shit. I don't like this guy. I don't want to deal with him. But he's like, I'm sure Pennysworth will be really excited to hear about your thing. Mm. It's not cool, man. Mm -hmm. Like owning a business is a responsibility. At some point, you have to take responsibility for that shit. The, uh... Well, think of who we're talking about, though. He was a former bad guy. Yeah, I know. His moral flexibility is still still there. Yeah, it really never did deal with that. Mm -hmm. Like, he oh. was an evil supervillain mm -hmm. who was mostly a burglar-style supervillain. But because he drew the line at not wanting to blow up the entire Earth, then that makes him a superhero. And they have, they have never really dealt with his moral compass in, mm -hmm. in any regard. Everybody just accepts that, like, well, he doesn't want to blow up the Earth. That makes him one of the good guys. Yeah. So he's on our team of superheroes. And yet, you know, he's probably letting Penny's Worth run his business in, you know, a way that hurts people in the same way his burglary did. Yeah, probably more so. Mm -hmm. I mean, his burglary, at least, was presumably of rich people. I don't think he was, like, going in and stealing old sofas out of apartments and shit. No, it was probably jewelry stores. Yeah, but in addition to that, Nighthawk also, when he's coming home from the party, he sees a, a peeping Tom outside of the window, like, looking into the apartment, wearing a trench coat. Mm -hmm. Do you think it was the thing? No, because you see when he's running away, he's he's a person. Well, he's wearing a trench coat. How can you tell? In the, the scene where he's running away, he's got a human countenance. Yeah, you can't tell. A trench coat could be concealing anything. I know a trench coat and a fedora can conceal anything. Oh, he doesn't thing. have a fedora? You see you see his face to a degree. It's shadowy, but you see it, unless I'm mistaken. Mm, I still think that's probably either no fedora. the thing. Well, you're right. He doesn't have a fedora. Therefore, okay. human. Therefore, he might be a human. He might be. I still think it might be Raphael from the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Just looking for a pizza, man. Yeah, well, I mean, the thing about Raphael... Why, why Raphael? Well, because that guy seemed like he was cool, hmm. but rude. <laughs> <laughs> so Kyle sees that guy and is like, Hey, what are you doing peeking in that window at people? And the guy's like, No, it wasn't like... I was just trying to see some stuff. Yeah. Kyle goes, I bet you were. And then the guy runs off and he, Kyle literally says to himself, well, there's probably nothing I can do about that. No point in chasing him. Yeah. How is there no point in chasing him? It's, it's it, nighttime. It's nighttime. You're as fast as two fast men. Your name is Nighthawk. Yeah. Meaning at night. Yeah. You're as fast as a hawk. Exactly. Go catch the guy. Yeah. Go catch the guy. Can't do it. Uh, I don't want to. I'm bummed out. Instead, I gotta go to Steve's house and say, oh no, people. His reaction when he sees <laughs> that there is a baby in the house, it made it look like... He's horrified. He's horrified. It does that thing where there are very small words inside of a large word bubble mm -hmm. that, that is just like, oh, he is aghast. He sees a baby and he says, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> dot, dot, dot. <laughs> does he have specific superhero weakness against babies like will that make him as if he's exposed to a baby will that make him as powerful as half a strong man oh maybe so or does he think that that might be his kid like he has this look of panic on his face when he sees a baby that i don't know if it's intentional but it is certainly worth noting there's a couple things with the way nighthawk is drawn and the dialogue he's given in this issue that are a little wonky there was that one other we were talking about where it was perhaps an editorial error but he repeats his dialogue yeah in a way that doesn't make sense it seems like it's almost the setup for a joke but it doesn't pay off they've just arrived at the scene of the apartment fire and nighthawk recognizes the dude who was trying to talk to him at the party who is the real asshole who's the guy who's the landlord of the building mm -hmm. and he says well, what do you know? Old weird Harold himself. And looks like I didn't misjudge him at all. Dr. Strange says, Do you know that man, Nighthawk? Kyle says, Do I have to admit it? Hulk says, Why does Fat Man yell so much? Kyle says, Do I have to admit it? What? 
Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, one of a few things that he says and does that doesn't make any sense. Possibly also, it, it's strange to me that maybe his reaction, it just occurred to me, honestly, that when he walks into the house is that he is not in costume and that he's worried that it'll give away a secret identity because there are strangers there. But he gets over that pretty quick because he seems to change into his Nighthawk costume and reveal his secret identity to this person that he's just met who has a baby mm -hmm. without even thinking about it. Yeah, that's a good point. Maybe that was his... His initial reaction, but then he's concern. like, oh, well. Yeah, fuck it. Cat's out of the There's bag. nothing I can do about it now. Which yep. seems to be his default status. There are a few little things in the issue that I enjoyed or that cracked me up. One of them is in the initial scene where we see Val walking down the street and it's chilly out, so she's got some icicle breath coming out of her mouth. Mm -hmm. There's some graffiti on the wall <laughs> behind her that is in really small letters and you had to look at it, but it's the names of some people who work on Marvel Comics, mm -hmm. and some of them have done this. I assume that's who it is, because it's just their names, like, written in tiny little graffiti tags on the walls of these tenement buildings. Uh, but the names are, it says, Sal B. Mm -hmm. I think that's probably Sal Busema. I would have to guess that. There's a Mike E, and it says, Mike E. Rots. Ho, ho. ho you ho, know, ho. like graffiti often says. Yes. Pretty good. It's got... Bill M, which I assume is Bill Mantlo. It says Duffy, which I think might be Joe Duffy or Mary Joe Duffy. She wrote under both names. I think initially she went by Joe Duffy, but I think that might be her. But then it has my favorite one, which just says John V is big. <laughs> yep. Uh, okay. I was trying to figure out who John V is. I don't really know for sure. I think it might mean John Ramita. I know his middle name is v, it starts with a V, but I don't know who John V is or really anything about him other than the fact that apparently he is big. A large man. Yeah, in some regard, he is a large man. Mm. But you know, Corey, it's not the size of a man's blade that determines the strength of his character, but rather the boldness of his heart. Hear, hear. <laughs> I mentioned that when Val was walking down the street, she had a icicle breath out of her mouth. There's a lot made of that in this issue. It, it comes up a number of times, and I kind of like it. It's a weird specific cartooning choice, but I wish it hadn't been done so much because I think it undercuts the effectiveness of the one scene in which Val first sees the rat in the baby's crib, and there's a close-up of her face, and there's like this... I don't know how to describe it other than icicle breath. I'll, I'll post a picture of it. it. It's like a jagged line with like little icicle dangles coming out of it. Mm -hmm. That's her only, it's not dialogue, but that's all that's happening. And in that scene, it's super effective and it makes it look like she is just frozen with horror at what she sees. And mm. I think that looks really cool. But they also have that same thing happening in a number of other panels when people are just chilly. Mm-hmm. And I kind of wish they didn't have it in the others because I think it would have been a little bit more striking mm. if you didn't have to wonder if, yeah, maybe she's just chilly in there. Mm -hmm. Which is also a point. There is no heat in this tenement building. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that's what that was trying to convey. And I think it kind of muddies the water that there's more of that. So we don't know who to blame for that. Could be the finished art person or the... Layouts? Layouts person. Yeah, I'm still not sure. It, it's... When it's not written out as pencils and inks, I don't know how the art breaks down. You were asking me about that before. It looks very much like Sal Buscema art. I feel like when it just says layouts, that is sometimes meaning that the inker did a greater percentage of the work. Mm -hmm. I don't know that that's the case here. I think they might just be experimenting with different titles because there are just a number of faces that are just like, oh, that is Sal Buscema art. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I'm, I'm never sure exactly how that breaks down. Somebody's responsible for that icicle breath. I think that's probably Mike Esposito. Okay. So, in part, nice job, but maybe tone it back a little, buddy. Too much. Was there anything else you wanted to talk about before we get into the minutia? No, I think I'm ready. All right. So, Rick, would you like to sing us in? Oh, and Rick, also, if you skipped last week's episode because it was a clip show... I think that was wrong. I worked very hard on it, but I understand your decision, even if I don't advocate for it. Rick wrote a new song that I put on that that is, is a rap song that is great. I'm going to 
I'll put it at the end of this episode so you can listen to it in its entirety. But uh, once again, just fantastic work, Rick. Thank you. I'm, I'm humbled by that. But now please sing us in. We got minutia. It's not the biggest part. It's just minutia. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. So what do you feel like hitting up first? Who had to be a sucker? Oh, boy. In this issue, as every issue of a Defenders comic, there's one character who has to act like the Fat Boys in Crush Groove and act in a way that is against their previously established motivation or character in a way that furthers the plot. Just being a sucker. Mm. Who had to be a sucker? This was not an easy one for me. I found myself kind of splitting hairs to find a sucker. As did I. Who did you end up with? I ended up with Doctor Strange. Oh. Because there's a scene in which he decides that Harold Holloman should not be beaten to death by the angry tenement folks and uh, floats him up above the violent crowd. Right. And then um, the snake Nazi guys show up and they're like, hey, put the white man down. He's like, okay. <laughs> Just drops him. Oh, really? Yeah. And I was like, that doesn't seem like Steve Strange. That doesn't seem like Steve not Strange. I a, didn't even remember that. Not even a witty rejoinder. Yeah. Wow, I had not noticed that at all. Right? Why did he do that? He's just like, oh, okay. Oh, okay. Well, uh, sure, I guess you guys are in charge now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it does not seem like... That is not. I'm going to change mine. My, mine is now Steve, too, for, for that reason. <laughs> Bad job, Steve. No kidding. Why? Nazi tells you to do something, don't do it. Ah. Just, ah. He, he made some certainly questionable choices. But yeah, that is definitely a bad one and also is very out of character for him. I didn't even notice it. It just didn't register with me. I went with Nighthawk for not chasing down the uh, the Peeping Tom because that seems like that is totally within his wheelhouse. Like, he is very much in the thing that Batman gets criticized for mode of he fights criminals, not necessarily crime. And I feel like that would have been his, like, oh, a small scale crime is happening right in front of me it's nighttime here i go yes and no but do you think he just felt a certain kinship with the dude because the dude was a creeper <laughs> no that's not what i was getting at although that could be part of it no i think this was pretty much in keeping with like him just being a selfish kind of douchey okay. guy he's like I guess I gotta say something, because this creepy shit's happening. Oh, there he goes, whatever. I'm, I'm still bummed out. Mopey, mopey, mopey. Okay, I think you're right. And as I said, I am changing my vote to Steve, because that is berserk that he would he would immediately drop that dude out of the air. Mm-hmm. I do like that he when he, he saved the dude's life, he didn't make the point that he's like, I don't care about saving this dude. I don't want these people to get in trouble for murdering him. It will make things worse for them. Like... Yeah, I just don't want you guys to get in trouble, because I understand that you're pissed off, and that, man, Holloman's a real piece of shit. He sure is. I hate that guy so much. Also, like, no real sense of self-preservation. No. Don't spit in the large person's face that's angry at you. No. Don't do that. Did I tell you about the time a dude spit in my face? What? No. I was at the bar. Uh, I was working at the Matador, and there was a large, very troubled man who... uh. Yeah, I went troubled in a in a very aggressive way. Right. He was really, really big and was just very scary and was calling one of my coworkers a bitch. And I told him he had to leave and he was spewing like just straight out nonsense out of his face. And I was like, okay, fine. We're walking towards the door and was kind of like just like moving him back. And he yelled a bunch of stuff at me, including several racial slurs that did just literally did not apply to me, which were more confusing than mm-hmm. anything else. And then he spit in my face. And it was like this moment, I think, with both of us, where I was just like, what the fuck? It was just like, I have been trying really hard to deal with this in a responsible way. I'm not sure what's going to happen next. And as soon as he did it, he was just like, he had this moment of clarity and Mm -hmm. was just like, oh shit, I'm sorry. And he left. Weird. Yeah. Whoa. It was really weird. Oh, man, that sounds... I'm so stressed out hearing that story. It, it, was, <laughs> it, was, it was not an unstressful situation. Damn. But yeah, so I can totally identify with this guy who wanted to punch Holloman in his fat white belly. Yep, he did, too. I know, it was great. Punched him good. I lived vicariously through him. It was a delight. Very good. Yes. So, what were we talking about? Sucker. 
Okay, suckas. Yeah, so I think you are completely correct that Steve is the sucker. Very good. That's uh, 500 Corey points. <laughs> oh, <laughs> you're, you're making a comeback. <laughs> you lost a lot in your absence when all of your atoms were vaporized and spread across the universe. I did have to deduct some Corey points for that. These rules are too complicated, man. Well, Corey, just don't get yourself vaporized and spread uh, at an atomic level across the universe again. I can't make that promise. I know. Sound effects. What were your favorite sound effects? Oh, I like the noise that it makes when two men fight and something happens and it goes, what? I liked that too. It made me think that maybe they were on candid camera. What is a what? That was hosted by a man named Alan Funt. (laughs) I I think maybe they were just doing such a bad job fighting each other Mm. that somebody saw them fighting and was like, this has got to be some kind of a prank. Mm. Funt, get out here. Ah, that's probably what happened. Probably. That That would be what I would imagine. My other favorite sound effect is the noise that it makes when you throw a cat sized rat against a tenement wall. Fap! I had that too. Damn. That was that whole sequence was just so affecting. But yeah, uh, those were my two favorite sound effects. We had the same sounds. We are of one mind. Hmm, that's inconvenient. Yes, it is. Sartorially speaking, what fashion in this issue would you like to comment upon? <laughs> my notes were rather shorthand, and the first one says "bird nose ruffles." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I also had Nighthawk's tuxedo. <laughs> that thing was out of control. He was like a kid going to prom in like 1968. It uh, was... A lot of ruffles that year, right? A lot, a lot of baby blue ruffles. Mm. Yeah, he's wearing a baby blue, hugely ruffled shirt with a white tuxedo jacket over it. It is a very distinct and very silly look. Yeah. Maybe that's why he didn't chase the guy. Because... didn't want to mess up his shirt. Oh, like maybe it just would have provided too much wind resistance? No, like he didn't want to get, oh, he didn't get want it, it dirty or oh, tear it or get it sweaty or anything. I guess that makes sense. Yeah, that was my main thing sartorially. I liked Val's outfit when we first saw her. She is in her civilian duds. It's just a nice, uh, it's like a short trench coat that she is wearing over a, like, mini dress. And with some nice, like, calf-high boots. It's a good look. It's a really good look. Yep. Pretty cool looking. She looks cool. Yeah, she looks like a cool lady. I had another note that says snake hats are silly. Yes. And that refers to the, uh, is it Brotherhood of the Serpent? Sons of the Serpent. Sons of the Serpent. That's yeah, I'm... because I, I get confused because there's also the Serpent Society, which is totally different and unrelated mm. to them. But yeah, they got a weird looking kind of helmet thing with like stripes horizontally across where your nose would be. Yeah, it's like they put a cummerbund over their nose. Mm-hmm. It's not a great look. Oh, it looks way better in color. I just read the black and white trade copy before. Yeah, they're, they got like a low rent Serpentor thing going on. Mm. Orange and green. Some good bad guy colors. Yeah, you got them. You got the Mirror Master. You got uh, probably some other dudes. Mm-hmm. Who else is yellow and... Or orange and green? That's a baddie. See, we got a lot of purple and green. We've covered oh, that yes. before. Oh, yes. Who else? Aquaman. He's good, though. Well, he's kind of mean to Aqualad sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Which makes him the greatest supervillain of all. Uh... Yeah, mostly just Mirror Master, I guess. And the Sons of the Serpent. And mm. Serpentor, too. Hmm. Yeah, they're good snaky colors, really. Yeah, I guess. Are there a lot of orange and green snakes? Sure. Uh, you got your um, emerald snake. Oh, the emerald snake. Mm-hmm. Oh, right. The, the the orange-bellied emerald snake? Yeah, that one. That oh, one. Indigenous man. to... Very deadly. Certain parts of... Uh, Made-up-a-stan? Self-made-up-a-stan. <laughs> oh! That's the most deadly region. Yeah. What were your favorite words in this issue? There were a number to choose from. Well, unfortunately, we've already heard them about ten times, but it was uh, it was Valkyrie's um, exposition on... A man's strength. And character, yep. Yes. Not being measured by the length of his blade, but the boldness of his heart. Well, and honestly, if it had ended there, it would be a better speech, but she does go on after that. Boldness, the quality of courage, the ability to dream and to build... To seize life and savor it to the fullest. Boldness. Not empty bravura delivered at knife point to a helpless victim. Now depart at once without your weapons or face my full fury. Yeah, Kind of badass, but the whole, like, Webster's defines boldness as... Mm -hmm. That didn't really work for me. 
Also, they both had knives, so they weren't attacking a helpless victim at knife point. Mm. They were having a knife fight with each other. Yeah. So not entirely applicable. Nope. That's why I just had the first part. Well, the first part's the best, and also it seems like she's making fun of their dicks. Yeah, that kind of cracked me up. Yeah. So that was pretty good. I think, though, even above that, my favorite words in the issue were the dude who gets spit in his face, where his, his buddies are yelling for him and saying, Right on, man. Slug his fat white belly. Yep. And he does, and it's great. Yeah, Holloman's such a piece of shit. He's a dick. I hate that guy. Favorite panel. Ah. Indeed, ah. I had a couple. For starters, I like when uh, Val is kind of walking down the street kicking a bottle. Yep. It goes clink. That's nice. Is that the one that had the graffiti in the background where we learned that John V is big? It's near there, if not there. It's like a close-up of her, her boots. Oh, gotcha. That is nice. Yeah, I think my favorite is the, uh, gosh, the whole sequence with her, with the, the rat stab. Like, her face of horror, I, I talked about it a little bit before already, where there's, like, the icicle breath coming out of her mouth. The scene where she grabs the rat by the scruff of the neck, her throwing the rat against the wall, and the shadow of her stabbing the rat as the mother holds the baby as it cries. Very dramatic. It's all very dramatic, and it's all really well done. I think my favorite, though, is page 30, and I call it Hulk Smashes Racism. Yeah, that is awesome. The Snake Men also hate Hulk. Snake Men are Hulk's enemies, and Hulk will smash them. That's after he has his revelation that Hulk is not white. <laughs> yeah. You don't think Hulk is beautiful? <laughs> Fuck that. You know, yeah. Smash. Nah, that is, that is a really dramatic panel. It's really cool looking. Got those like energy lines like exploding out in every direction it almost looks like an atomic explosion when they do that because mm-hmm. like yeah those look like the the lines they make of the electrons circling the thing. nucleus of the atom yeah worth a thing as they say oh yeah yeah as an industry term and the atom business <laughs> yep that is a great panel and a decent way to segue into who in this issue was the best defender and who was the worst offender Man, easy. Is it? The best one is easy. Okay, who'd you have? Well, he likes baby smiles and he smashes racism. I'm going with our big green friend, the Hulk. I really wanted to go with the Hulk, and he also did a great job, but I went with Valkyrie. Ah, for saving the baby, killing saving a rat? Saving the baby, killing a rat. Mm. Just great job that her instincts were just like, here's a baby in trouble, I'll take him, to, I'll take him home with me to the place where I'm crashing. Yep. Um... I'm surprised Strange didn't freak out. Yeah. I bet he freaked out inside a little bit. I bet bit, a little but bit. But he was just like, oh, be cool, Steve, be cool. Be cool. You don't want to look like Kyle, do you? <laughs> but no, she 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 did a great job. I also loved the Hulk in this. He was a fucking delight. You're right. He played with a baby and he smashed racism. Not much more you can ask for. Mm-hmm. But yeah, as I said, Valkyrie, in part, it was nice to see her act boldly and decisively and as a warrior and really just the killing of that giant rabid rat just was very, very effective to me. Mm -hmm. Very affecting to me, too. Mm. It was great. And she was great. I'm giving her the slight nod over the Hulk, but man, did I love the Hulk. Good job, Val. Good job, Hulk. Conversely, worst offender. Yeah, I had a little bit of a toss up here between Steve Strange and, and Kyle and there are strong arguments to be made for both so my arguments for choosing dr strange are well first of all i didn't like the poverty mansplaining thing and he thinks he solved it by feeding a banquet to that one homeless guy yeah but mainly the way in which he deals with the aftermath of the sons of the snake sons of the serpent destroying that building he's like hey guys (laughs) stop fighting because there's going to be more loss of life and then waves a bunch of fire hydrants around not fire hydrants fire hoses fire and hoses. the idea of yes dispelling a potential race riot with the use of fire hoses right not not great not great and on top of that he could have used his magic to these are guys who are responsible at least for the death of one person the old man amos that died in the fire the sons you know, of the serpent yeah. yeah maybe more he could have captured them or wound them up with those fire yeah. hoses or something instead he causes the hoses to flail indiscriminately throughout the Just everybody yeah including knocking valkyrie over yes and by giving a speech about like oh no we have to save lives by basically letting the murderers then run away yeah 
it, it is telling that he decided to levitate just the the bad landlord before, mm-hmm. and not just everybody. Yep. He can. He's very powerful. He's Doctor Strange. And yeah, then it's like, no, there's been enough fighting today. Just everybody go home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was not great. I I think that, yes, a very strong argument is certainly to be made for, for Steve being the worst offender. I think also a very strong argument is made for Kyle being the worst offender in that really all the shit that we talked about, uh, being an absentee businessman, being in control of a business and not being responsible for what it's doing. It's it's not cool, man. That's it's like drunk driving, man. You're being reckless with a very powerful tool. Yeah, don't do it. Don't do it. Yeah, and also the letting the peeping Tom run away, his re- whole reaction to seeing a baby. Oh, no. He didn't do a good job. It's mostly the business thing mm-hmm. that puts him on par, but I had initially had him being the worst, but you're right. Steve does a bad job, man. Let the bad guys get away. He so could have easily He'd... not done that. Yeah. Good they're call. like really bad guys. They blew they're the them. worst guys. They killed, they they killed kill an old whole building of people. Yeah, and they did probably kill an old man. Mm-hmm. I mean, we don't see his body, so it's in a comic book. Maybe he'll, maybe old man Amos will come back as a superhero. <laughs> maybe he got some inhaled too much smoke powers. Ah, uh, smoke man. Yeah, you know. But yeah, very likely killed him. Ah, such jerks. I hate them. I hate the Sons of the Serpent so much. Me too. Bad guys. <laughs> Agreed. Is that all of the categories? Word sounds like a close. I guess we're on to uh to what's Wong up to. Let's go with It's a Wonderful Life. <laughs> <laughs> it's the holiday season. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I'm not bitter. Good. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> well, in April of nineteen seventy five, how was Wong leading his wonderful life? Well, so it's come up in the past that Wong's interests and pursuits are myriad. Sure. He's a real polyglot. Polymath? Polyglot. Speaks a lot of languages. Oh, yeah. He's that, too. Yep. He's also a polymath. He just does a lot of shit. Polymath. Isn't necessarily related to math. I have never heard that term before. It's a fun one. Yeah. Well, and so is Wong. <laughs> yes. As a part of his polymathematical lifestyle, he... <laughs> Is, in fact, a member of the uh, OECD, which is the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. It's a intergovernmental um, organization comprised of over about 35 countries. And at this time, you'll recall, maybe not because you weren't born yet. Yeah, I wasn't born yet. <laughs> so I don't recall it well. Yeah, me neither. I was like uh, one. But this was around the time of the, the gas uh, fuel crisis for, oh. uh, was was starting to ramp up in the in the 70s where mm-hmm. where prices were getting out of control things were just super stressful around getting your gas tanks filled and all of that and so Wong gets a call from his buddies at the OECD and they're like hey we're having these talks in, in Paris between the uh, oil producing nations uh, importing and exporting nations so uh, US and Japan being the importers uh, Venezuela Saudi Arabia and Iran being among the exporting nations and mm-hmm. so they're like okay guys we gotta get together and hash this out and figure out how to make it work for everybody that was on uh the 7th of april 1975 they couldn't even get the agenda together oh it man just basically all fell apart so wong was pretty bummed out about that went out drinking with some of the guys from oecd uh-huh they were able to slap some notes together come back a few days later and come up with a 35 billion dollar aid package to help out the people affected by the high oil prices so oh nice good work long man good diplomacy yeah whip inflation now yep <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, one of the things that Wong was up to wow but not the only thing i'm guessing oh no see Wong, as you unearthed in one of your previous research studies <laughs> Noted that Wong was a big fan of the movie The Godfather 2. Ah, yeah. He thought that it was superior to the original. Mm-hmm. And so he was very excited that it was nominated for an Oscar. So he ended up hoofing it out to the West Coast, going to L.A. to attend the Oscar Gala. Oh, fancy. Mm-hmm. Had a hell of a time, whining and dining with celebrities. Then he gets a call from Doctor Strange, who is once again rediscovered that poverty exists. Wong? Wong, I need you to do something. You remember all of those banquets? (laughs) 
I was thinking maybe if we could work some kind of a super agriculture, we could feed even more people. Mm. Well, well, do some culinary research and see what what kind of a creature could feed the most people. And so... <laughs> And so Wong's like, all right, fine. And so he started doing some some magical and uh, agricultural research and started talking with some local farmers, used some sorcery, and ended up making an enormous human-sized chicken. What? And All the way in San Diego? Well, well, not yet. The problem was, when he made the creatures human-sized, he also accidentally made it a human-chicken hybrid. He got a couple of notes wrong, and he's like, well, shit, we're, we're not going to eat this. We're not going to kill and eat this thing. But the chicken itself had noted that that had been the plan for him. He retained some of his chickenular memories, but now had some somewhat human uh, processing abilities for those memories and mm. freaks the fuck out and started running. Sure. And just kept running and did not stop until he hit San Diego, at which point he was spotted by a number of locals and was like, this guy's great. He's probably a baseball mascot, mm. which makes a lot of sense because their team is the Padres. Of course, yeah. God damn it. Spanish for human-sized chickens, right? Right, I think so. My okay. Spanish is a little bit rusty. Right. When you, you had a job at one point, uh, I think it was when, you, I think, I don't know if you were a localization engineer at the time, but yet, but it was the, um, you had that book of mistranslated advertising slogans. Right. My favorite one was the Frank Perdue slogan, it takes a tough man to make a tender chicken. Right. When they tried to use it in, was it Mexico? Purportedly, yeah. Uh, that... The, the translation of that slogan they used to translate it literally as it takes an aroused man to make a chicken affectionate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was actually trying to find the Spanish for that. Yeah. Because um, I wanted to use it as an example. And the problem with this is, unlike the other, like, well-known ones, like, like Chevy Nova, like, Nova right. doesn't go, like, that's documented. That's the name of the car. Right. There's no photographic evidence of these billboards that were around mexico city um so we can't prove right that that this bad translation was out there so it's like it may be one of those urban it might legends. just be anecdotal like it, yeah. it may be apocryphal mm -hmm. that's a bummer i know because i really want to know what the spanish was to, to i mean you can see where they would get that like it, oh, it, sure. would, it takes a hard man to mm -hmm. make yeah un hombre fuerte or duro <laughs> those are funny words yeah strong man or a hard man yeah um, anyway, that's where the San, uh, the San Diego <laughs> chicken first showed up in San Diego in April of 1975, and he became a, uh, one of the most beloved mascots. I think nowadays it is just a dude in a chicken suit. Hmm. It's well, tough to tell, but back then, originally, it was a, a human-chicken hybrid that was created by Wong in his attempt to, uh, solve world hunger. Ah. Yeah. Way to go, Wong. Well. It worked out okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kinda. Yeah. I mean, you know, he, he went kind of Dr. Moreau on the situation in an inadvertent way. But, mm. I mean, you know, Accidents good try. happen. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Exactly. And that is how Wong was leading his wonderful life <laughs> in April of 1975. Man, that guy has had so much impact on the world. I know. I know. He's really a hell of a man. Mm. Thank you so much for joining us, dear listeners. This was a hoot to record. We will be back next week with another episode of The New Teen Titans. And we'll be back, be back in two weeks and see how the Defenders square off against those shitheads, the Sons of the Serpent. Ooh. Yeah, fuck those guys. Yeah, if you'd like to get in touch with me, you can do so at ttwasteland at gmail.com. We are also on Facebook and Tumblr. We have a Patreon set up at patreon.com backslash ttwasteland. Um, if you'd like to make a donation to us, uh, I would certainly appreciate that. And... It was great chatting with you again. Thanks for bearing with us last week through the Clip Show episode. I actually really enjoyed doing that. It was a lot more fun than I had anticipated, and I'm pretty happy with how it came out. Good sound effects. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So, we'll see you later. Thanks. Font! Uh, stop! <laughs> oh, shit! There was a giant rat in here! Not anymore. Good job, Corey. Thanks.
Yo, it's tighten up the defense, and everybody knows our favorite superheroes, they're barely wearing clothes. You better watch out, Corey. Here comes a goose, and that super scary parrot from Zoobly Zoo. Everybody knows Hub's a human man from Earth, but America Songbird ain't exactly what he worth. What's Aqualad up to? And where the heck is Wong? Jamaican incense got them hitting that gong. I saw a giant T-Rex take a boat to the face. Kid Flash beat Trigon in a bobsled race. By the Vishante, so says Doctor Strange, but the doc is a dick, and that ain't gonna change. Tiny pliers help the Titans win the day, but adamantium chairs won't make the Hulk stay. Alarm, alarm, why is Raven so sad? Enjoy, enjoy, you know it's by my whole dad. You think that I'm high on Mr. Jupiter's balloons, but it's just that eerie stare from our final baboons. We got sound effects, and all your favorite scenes gonna hang out with the Hulk and eat some motherfucking beans. Those farty little monsters better get back home before I dick punch them all right in their bozone. Who's gotta be a sucker? It's these drunk-ass hosts. Or did I just have a stroke? Cause I smell toast. That's exactly how it goes, Corey. Ta-da! Oh, <laughs> you put a flare on it. A little embellishment. Very nice. Mm-hmm.